we're very happy to see all of you here this afternoon for this special discussion on the meaning of the 4th of July. There's a lot more to the story, and you'll be hearing about uh, events that took place before the 4th of July. But uh, we're very pleased that you're here. I would just like to mention something about the backdrop. During the last 10 days or so, we've been producing a series here in our studio titled God's Great Prophetic Chain. And uh, this panel discussion is actually the culmination of uh, that particular series on the prophetic chain. So that's the meaning of the backdrop that you can see uh, behind us. I would like to begin by reading a statement that we find uh, in Signs of the Times, July 4, 1899. July 4. Ellen White is writing this statement on Independence Day. And this is how it reads. The greatest and most favored nation upon the earth is the United States. A gracious providence has shielded this country and poured upon her the choicest of heaven's blessings. Here the persecuted and oppressed have found refuge. Here the Christian faith in its purity has been taught. This people have been the recipients of great light and unrivaled mercies. But these gifts have been repaid by ingratitude and forgetfulness of God. The infinite one keeps a reckoning with the nations, and their guilt is proportioned to the light rejected. A fearful record now stands in the register of heaven against our land, but the crime which shall fill up the measure of her iniquity is that of making void the law of God. So there you have the positive and the negative. Before we begin our discussion, and I introduce our participants this afternoon, I would like to have a word of prayer to ask the Lord to guide our discussion. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being here this 4th of July weekend to discuss the origins, the foundations, and the destiny of this great country which you have raised up for a time such as this. We ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Guide our thoughts, guide our words. I ask that you will bless everyone who will be watching this program, that it might be edifying, enlightening, and a blessing to each. We thank you, Father, for hearing and answering our prayer, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to take this opportunity to introduce uh, the panelists that we have here this afternoon. I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they're seated. First of all, I have my good friend, uh, Pastor Gary Jensen. Uh, pastor Gary Jensen is uh, the interim senior pastor of Fresno Central Church. And uh, he's been a friend and a colleague for several years. And I've really been blessed by having fellowship and, and learning many uh, details of history from you. And so we're glad, uh, Pastor Jensen, that you could be with us this afternoon. Uh, then next we have Daniel Mesa. Uh, we call him Daniel Table. But, uh, but he, you know, even though he has uh, the last name Mesa, uh, we thought for sure he would speak Spanish, but uh, he doesn't speak, speak any Spanish. But uh, anyway, uh, Daniel is our Associate Marketing Director here at um, Secrets Unsealed. Um, he's a tremendous Bible student, outstanding speaker, a defender of the faith, and it's been a real pleasure, Daniel, working with you here at Secrets Unsealed. Uh, then we have uh, Dustin Butler. 
I don't know Dustin as well as I know some of these other guys, but we have crossed paths now and then. Uh, he has participated in other symposiums before, symposiums on the issue of spiritual formation and the One Project. Um, Dustin is uh, an elder of the Orosi Church here in the Central California Conference. And then finally, last but definitely not least, is my good friend David Giangrande. Uh, he uh, moved to this area from New York, escaping the big city to the smaller city. And uh, David has been a really, really good friend uh, the many years that I've been here at Fresno Central. He's an avid reader. Uh, he, um, he's a good thinker. And um, it's a real pleasure to have David with us on the panel this afternoon. He is an elder of uh, the Fresno Central Seventh-day Adventist Church. So now you, uh, you know who these gentlemen are. Of course, I'm Stephen Bohr, the president of Secrets Unsealed. And uh, so now I would like to ask Pastor Jensen a question just to uh, warm up the panel. Pastor Jensen is very much involved in the issue of religious liberty. I know that for a fact. He spends a lot of time in Sacramento. He's very well versed on all of the issues relating to church and state. And I'd like to ask Pastor Jensen, what is it uh, that led you to dedicate so much time and so much interest to the issue of religious liberty, church-state issues, etc. Thank you, Steve, for that question. You know, religious liberty, when you stop and think about it, is really the cornerstone of the gospel. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus came to set us free from sin, from the devil, from temptation. Um, the freedoms that we enjoy are God-given by virtue of our creation. And so God is the author of liberty. It was his idea in the first place. And it's within the context of religious liberty that we are able to have freedom to proclaim the eternal truths of the everlasting gospel. And so I see as a minister that by fostering a climate of religious liberty, we're also fostering a climate in which the gospel can thrive. Rather than delaying the coming prophecies, which we'll get into at the end here, about the future of America. Rather, it is going to hasten the coming of Christ because what Jesus is waiting most of all for is for a people who are ready to receive him. And they can only do that where there is freedom for the gospel to be preached. Okay, well, let's get right into our subject. And uh, the first question that I want to ask is, uh, as we know, uh, the great empires of history have all been prophesied in Scripture. So the question is, uh, do we find in the Bible any specific prophecy that describes the rise of the United States as a superpower and uh, the final destiny of the United States? Do, do we have such a prophecy? We can find that prophecy in Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. And um, a very clear description of that is also found in the Great Controversy. And uh, it can be read there and, and explained fairly well. But Revelation 13 is, is an answer to that question. Okay, now we studied in the great prophetic chain uh, that uh, is culminating today um, the sequence of world powers that rise in the course of history. Uh, we began with Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, the Roman Empire, the divided Roman Empire, 
then the papacy ruling for 1260 years, and then we spoke about the beast that rises from the earth when the uh, papacy receives its deadly wound. Uh, so, and that would be, of course, Revelation chapter 13 and verses 11 through 18. Uh, so the question is, what evidences do we have from uh, that passage in Revelation 13 that the beast from the earth does represent the United States specifically? Do we have any, anything in that passage that would indicate that the beast from the earth that has two horns like a lamb and speaks like a dragon is a symbol of the United States? The symbol itself, it's interesting. It says it had two horns like a lamb. That word like is very significant. It wasn't a lamb. John didn't know uh, how to describe it because he had never seen such an animal. But it's obviously a reference to the bison or the buffalo, which is native to North America. So his readers would never, if you've seen it, it has two horns like a buffalo, they would have scratched their heads and said, what is that? Um, but the buffalo uh, has very small horns, and it's been a symbol of the United States. It appeared on the buffalo nickel. It appears today on the flag of the Secretary of the Interior and uh, is, is an adequate representation of the principles of separation of church and state. Anybody else want to add uh, characteristics in Revelation 13 that describe uh, what this beast represents? Sure. One of the characteristics I'd like to mention is that in verse 11, as it says, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. It does not talk about coming up out of the earth in force and taking by using teeth or stamping as it does in Reve uh, Daniel chapter 7 and 8. And so the, the way that this nation comes up in what we know as an unpopulated area, which would be the earth, which is contrary to the water, which we know as peoples, uh, just the characteristics of those two things coming up in an unpopulated area, which would be represented by the earth, and also the way it comes up is peaceably could also represent the United States of America. Arnold Toynbee, the great historian, said that like a silent seed, America came up out of the ground. And it's interesting, the same power that inflicted the wound on the first beast, the sea beast, the papacy, uh, France was also the same power that recognized the emergence of the United States. Also, we could mention the fact that uh, this beast from the earth rises in the prophetic chain where the first beast receives its deadly wound. And the first beast received its deadly wound in 1798, which means that we would expect this nation to rise somewhere around the year 1798. And of course, uh, we all know the United States uh, had its origins you know, with three, basically three founding documents. We have uh, the Declaration of Independence. Uh, we have uh, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, 1776, 1787, and 1791. And then the deadly wound is 1798. I was also thinking in, in verse 12 where it talks about he will cause the earth and them which dwell therein to worship. It must of necessity be a world-wide uh, influence. And of course, the United States has been known as one of the strongest nations in the world. Yes. Uh, anyone want to add something else? Not so much add something, but I have a question about verse 13. Verse 13 says that he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. So my question is, why, why does it look like this power is on the winning side? Whereas we see then sto the story of Elijah... 
Elijah was able to make fire come down from heaven. See, we're, we're, we're switching places, it seems. And I was wondering if anybody can expand on the apparent swap. Well, the fact is that uh, this beast from the earth is also called the false prophet right. in Revelation 16, verse 13. And it's, just, it's not any false prophet. It is the false prophet Elijah. So Elijah made fire come down from heaven. So the false prophet Elijah is going to make fire come down from heaven. In other words, he's going to do something that the false prophets could not do in the days of Elijah. All right. Uh, uh, let me just uh, uh, ask this question. The United States, obviously, is a nation that is radically different than the nations of Europe uh, during the 1260 years. So the question is, in what sense was the United States different than the nations in Europe, like, for example, France and Germany and so on, during the 1260 years? I, th I think most of us are pretty familiar with um, what happens when a head of state in a royal kingdom in Europe changes. There's usually a clergyman who puts the crown on the head of the person who will be leading the country. And that shows a very close relationship between uh, the religious power in that country as well as the civil government. And here in the United States, we set up a situation where the church is totally separate from the government. In other words, the government does not tell the church how to run its doctrinal position, and the church does not tell the government what kind of laws to pass. There is um, a liaison that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has with our government, and the reason why we have that is not so that we can push our own doctrinal position on the country, but it's to make sure that our leaders are maintaining the freedoms that we have within our system. So basically, the idea is that uh, the role of the civil government is to protect everyone's right to practice their religion. And one of the differences in this country uh, compared to what was happening in Europe is that we have a church without a pope. We also have a nation without a king. And I think we can see that there in Revelation chapter 11, and I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 11, where it says, it had two horns like a lamb. And it never does say that those horns had crowns. Well, the horns in chapter 13, verse 1, had crowns. That was European. This is not. Very good point. Um, also, uh, we're told that this beast from the earth has two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we've understood that uh, the two horns like a lamb represent civil and religious liberty. Uh, and, of course, the foundation of civil and religious liberty is the idea of the separation of church and state. Uh, so, do we find anywhere in the Bible the idea that uh, the church should be separate from the state? And what are the repercussions uh, when church and state are joined together? Is there anything in the Bible that, uh, that says that uh, the church should operate as church and the state as state? Very clearly, we could all answer that in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God, recognizing that they each have a specific uh, realm in which to function. It's interesting to note that in the Old Testament, we find this same principle uh, enunciated in a passage that's not very well known in Second Chronicles 
chapter 19 and verse 11, and then I'll make a comment here. Second Chronicles 19, 11. And behold, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of the Lord. And Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. So basically what we have here is, uh, as illustrated in the 12 tribes, the priests were chosen from the tribe of Levi, whereas the kings were chosen from the tribe of Judah. So God made a distinction. You could not, they could not both come from the same, same tribe. So those are just a couple of biblical principles. Uh, also, we have the text in uh, John 18, verse 36, when Jesus was in the presence of Pilate. And Pilate asked Jesus if he was a king. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus recognized two kingdoms. In fact, uh, Pilate probably understood the separation of church and state better than the Jews did. Because uh, when uh, he examined Jesus, he went out and he said, you know, this, I don't find anything wrong with this man. Uh, judge him according to your law. So Pilate recognized there were two laws. There was the law of God and there was his law. And Jesus was not guilty of violating his law. But then, of course, the religious leaders said, uh, you know, according to our law, he should die. And we cannot execute the death penalty without the help of the civil power. And you can also see the principles of why we should not have church and state combined in a nation is because in the days of Elijah, when Ahab and Jezebel were coming against God's faithful, which was Elijah, they were persecuted or he was persecuted. And in the days of Esther, when the church and state or the state was desiring worship came against Esther and the Jews, we saw that there was persecution as a result of the church and state coming together. Same picture in Daniel chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar wanted worship it led to persecution. In chapter 6 of the book of Daniel, Darius wanted worship. It led to persecution. Same thing in the days of Christ. It was the Jews that said, we have no king but Caesar. They were combining church and state. It ended up in persecution. Same thing in the dark and middle ages, persecution. So we know that according to Revelation 13, when it talks about America giving its uh, civil authority over to the religious power of the first beast, which is Rome, or I'm sorry, the papacy, when church and state comes together, it says at the end of Revelation 13, there will be persecution again. And so the principles in the Bible make it clear that it should absolutely be separate. There should not be church and state on this earth. Absolutely correct. Extremely important too. Uh, so, so this beast from the earth, it says that uh, it has two horns like a lamb, which represents civil and religious liberty. And at the foundation of that is the separation of church and state but then we're told, strangely enough, that this same beast that has two horns like a lamb, in Revelation, the lamb represents Christ. 29 times the word is used. And in every case, it represents Christ. So how is it that, that, that the same beast has two horns like a lamb and ends up speaking like a dragon? What does that mean that it's going to speak like a dragon? It's going to change its method of operation uh, from allowing freedom to coercion. Uh, in Revelation 13, a couple of times it me mentions that it will make or force people to go along with the agenda of, of the uh, powers uh, that be. One of the things that we notice as we read the Bible is that the principles that occurred uh, all through the history in the Bible 
uh, are the same that will be occurring in the future. Human nature has not changed in 6,000 years. So when we, what we see that has happened in the past is definitely going to be happening again in the future. And I forgot to mention that word speak is very significant. We'll speak as a, uh, a dragon. How does a nation speak? It speaks through its legislative body, through the laws that the government enacts. So there will be uh, oppressive in uh, legislative uh, action. And uh, as I pointed out in the series that we produced uh, before this uh, panel discussion, uh, in the book of Revelation, the dragon always represents Satan working through Rome. It was Satan working through Herod that attempted to kill Christ. It was uh, the dragon that persecuted the woman to the wilderness for 1260 years. So when we're told that this beast from the earth speaks like a dragon, it's not only saying that it speaks like Satan, but this beast is going to speak like Rome. And uh, when we examine the Revelation chapter 13, we find that everything that this beast from the earth does, it does to help the previous beast recover its power. You know, the previous beast, you know, the, the bear finished off the lion and the leopard finished off the bear and the dragon finished off the leopard. But when you get to the point of uh, this beast from the earth, uh, it doesn't fight any of, any of the previous beasts. What it does is it helps the previous beast recover its power. Uh, you read Revelation 13, 11 to 18. It says there that uh, this beast from the earth exercises all of the authority of the first beast. It says it uh, does everything in the presence of the first beast, which really means on behalf of the first beast. It commands everyone to worship the first beast. It makes an image of the first beast. It enforces the mark of the first beast. Somehow I think that uh, this uh, beast from the earth is actually going to help the first beast, which represents the papacy, recover its power. And, uh, you know, do we see signs of that? Let me just throw this out. Do we see signs that uh, this is actually being fulfilled in our day and age? Well, I think we see, um, we see evidence of that in Daniel chapter 2. When you mentioned uh, this beast helps the previous beast, we see those, those feet of iron and clay. And we read in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, what this clay represents. This clay represents the church. It is us. And those feet of iron and clay consist of partly the iron that preceded it. Okay, so you have the Roman iron mixing with the clay of the church. You have a Roman church and a mingling of the two. So that kind of piggybacks on what what you're saying about the, the beast. And you know, almost all of the pictures of Antichrist in the, in the Bible portray that the main characteristic of uh, the papacy, this end time power, is uniting church and state. That, you know, it has many other characteristics, but the central characteristic that comes in every passage is how the papacy uses the civil power to accomplish its purposes. Now, are we seeing any influence of the papacy these days uh, upon the national policy of the United States? Well, there's several of them. One has to do with the uh, uh, opening diplomatic relationships with Cuba. Uh, the Pope played a major role, Pope Francis, in working uh, uh, with uh, Obama, President Obama, in making that happen. And Obama actually credited the Pope for playing a major role in that. Uh, this whole issue about climate control, 
again, uh, was largely initiated initially uh, by Pope Francis. And uh, the current uh, administration of the United States often uh, confers, as have several presidents in the past, with the Pope before any uh, major decision uh, is arrived at. Maybe I can ask Daniel. Uh, we went to Philadelphia last year, mm -hmm. towards the end of September. Uh, could you maybe give us a little report about what you saw there? I'll do what I can. I remember uh, distributing literature and uh, trying to move boxes and DVDs and pass them out, and people were taking them hungrily because we actually had something that uh, had a picture of the Pope behind the world, and it, it uh, as though the Pope's plan was to rule the world, which it is. And I'll tell you, there were so many people hungry to see and to hear the Pope as he was driving by in what is known as his Popemobile. And I'm not talking about just a few people. There was full, the, the entire area was closed off and people were flooding literally shoulder to shoulder down the roads going toward where the Pope would be seen. On every street, we had military there, we had police there, we had um, all of the streets closed down, we had only bus services, there was high security everywhere, and it was really amazing to see. So I don't know if you can remember something else that I didn't say, but it was, it was quite an experience. It was an extraordinary experience uh, to be there. And, uh, you know, on the, the last uh, Saturday afternoon when we were there, uh, we went to a place where the Pope was going to have a special concert presented in, on his behalf. And, uh, the, you know, we were standing there and the Pope mobile comes down th the road and you should have heard those people going wild. And cameras galore with a, you know, with a little stick that they use to take pictures. And, uh, you know, it just shows how the attitude in the United States towards the papacy has radically changed. And, you know, not only in terms of the populace, but also the fact that when the Pope came, he met for 45 minutes in the White House to talk about policy, not religion. Talk about, you know, climate change. And, uh, and he also talked about the need to eradicate poverty. And those are two themes that uh, President Obama also is very passionate about. And then that he would present a speech before a joint session of Congress, first time in the history of the United States, and Congress is sworn to uphold the Constitution. The Constitution separates church and state. So, you know, they have this guy who believes in the union of church and state addressing them uh, when they are sworn by law to separate church and state. So it, it was an amazing thing. And then to see him go to the United Nations yeah. to inaugurate the 70th anniversary of the United Nations and uh, speaking on the same talking points, you know, climate change, poverty, immigration, family, you know, those, that's what the secular world wants to hear. And so he, you know, he plugs into what the secular world wants to hear. And, uh, and to see that after he gave his speech, he received a standing ovation from 193 nations were represented there, a standing ovation, which lasted for several minutes. Uh, it shows how the mood of the world has changed, and not only the United States, but the whole world is actually beginning to marvel after this power. The, under, <clears throat> the undergirding principle of ca Catholic theology is uh, social theology has to do with this phrase, the common good. Uh, if you listen carefully, you will hear this phrase 
used over and over again by the Roman Catholic Church. And when you think of that, what it's really saying is what is best for the majority uh, is what we need to do. There needs to be a redistribution of wealth so we don't have the extreme levels of, of wealth and, and, and poverty, uh, you know, between the rich and the poor and all the rest. Uh, and so um, the rights of the minority uh, are going to be trumped in favor of what is best for the majority of people, a common good. Yeah, Daniel. You know, I'm just thinking about the comment earlier in the verse of Revelation 13, verse 11, where it says it will speak as a dragon. I just want to relate something in the Old Testament that will help us understand a little bit more about the biblical principles of what it's like to speak as a dragon. Ezekiel 29, verse 3 says that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is that great dragon. If you look at Pharaoh and his activities in the Old Testament, well, his heart was hardened, but one of the things he said was, who, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. What's interesting is here he does not know the Lord out, you know, by his own voice. In Revelation 13, we have a nation that claims to know the Lord. But I think we can put the two together because Christ says in Luke 6, 46, why call ye me Lord? Lord, and do not the things which I say. So we have in Matthew chapter 7, there's a group that's going to say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these wonderful things? And he's going to say what? I never knew you because you didn't do the things that I said. You weren't my, you weren't my servant as, as we ought to be to our almighty God. So I think in Exodus 5, you can read that Pharaoh made trouble for God's people who just wanted to worship him in concert with his commandments and he builded laws in his nation to make it more difficult for God's people to honor him in the Sabbath and also the sacrifices that he wanted to commit. And I believe that story can be related to Revelation 13 in how he will be speaking like a dragon. Okay, um, let's move on to another, another point which I consider to be important. Uh, the book of Revelation refers to the beast from the earth um, making an image of the first beast and also imposing the mark of the first beast. So what would it mean if uh, the beast from the sea, the first beast of Revelation 13, represents the papacy, which uh, very clearly it does, and the beast from the earth represents the United States with its two founding principles, uh, which are civil and religious liberty, what would it mean that the beast from the earth makes an image of the first beast. What specifically would that mean? Well, if, uh, if anyone has seen a statue, they know that the statue is supposed to be a likeness of something that's real. And if you have an image of a beast, then what I think we're seeing is um, a setting up of a government which does the same sort of thing that had been done previously. So I think that's kind of what we're looking at. And uh, the question is, what had the papacy done previously? What is it that characterizes the papacy? You know, so, sometimes Adventists confuse uh, the Catholic Church with the papacy. They're, they're not the same thing. Uh, because after the deadly wound, the Catholic Church continued functioning. I mean, people still baptized their kids. Uh, they, they still went to the confessional. You know, the church, even with the Pope prisoner, continued functioning. 
the word papacy refers to the union of the church with the state. That's the distinguishing characteristic of the papacy. So if the beast from the earth is going to make an image of the first beast, it must mean that it is going to merge church and state and act in the same way that the papacy did during the 1260 years. Somebody want to amplify that point? Yeah, I mean, you were talking about it, but I, I, I like to relate things to a biblical story so that we'll be able to see and understand from the Scripture what that means. And you're right, the papacy is church and state. And what we can see is in Daniel chapter 3, we have church and state coming together and an image being made. Revelation 13, there's church and state coming together and an image being made. I'd like to point out a difference between the two. In Daniel chapter 3, you can see the word worship. I believe it's 12 times in that one chapter. And you can also see another interesting thing. So it's worship, 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 worship related several different times. But in verse 1, the king made an image. In verse 2, the image which the king had set up. In verse 3, the image that the king had set up. Again, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In verse 5, the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. In verse 7, the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And then in verse 12, the image which the king had set up. In verse 14, the golden image which I have set up, the king speaking. Verse 15, the image which I have made, again, the king speaking. And then it says in, I'm sure somewhere else in there that I've, I've got so many notes I can't figure it out. But the, the whole comment here is that the king is commanding worship to those that are in his realm. Now, what's interesting is in Revelation 13, it says... Uh, once I find it, I'll be able to get there and, and read it to you. It says in verse 14, this beast, the American beast here, deceives them to dwell in the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast. And so here we don't have the top down like we see in Daniel chapter 3 where the king is forcing people to worship. Here, we have the people being encouraged to make an image to the beast, which will cause, of course, all the others to uh, follow suit. So here we have the voice of the people drawing those in their nation to worship the beast and his image. You know, it's very similar to what happened in the days of Christ. Um, we're told in, in Matthew 27 and verse 20 that the religious leaders influenced the people to cry out to Pilate to kill Jesus, to crucify Jesus. So really, it's the religious leaders that are influencing their, their parishioners to influence the state to get rid of those who do not agree with, uh, with what the uh, government is establishing. And what's very interesting about that portion is Christ was up there as the Son of God, Pilate had just asked him, are you the son of the blessed? And his response was two words, I am. Right next to him was Barabbas. If you think of the word bar, bar means son of. Abba is father. Bar Abbas was the son of the father. So you have the son of God, Christ. You have the son of the father, Barabbas. And the question is, which one are you going to choose? There's the false Christ right in front of you. There's the true Son of God. And of course, the answer was, we want Barabbas. Crucify Christ. And I'm praying that our church, our people, 
will study the Bible well enough not to make that same decision in the future that was made back there, which, of course, we will relive in our future. You know, what's even more significant is that um, there are ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that say that Barabbas was, was called Jesus Barabbas. So you have Jesus Barabbas, the son of the Father, and you have Jesus of Nazareth, <laughs> the son of God. And so really that's a very interesting choice that, uh, that the Jews are being uh, offered. And of course they made the wrong choice. Uh, throughout the course of history, you know, the, the apostate church has usually been the instigator of persecution by using the civil power. You look at the book of Acts, for example. In the book of Acts, if you look up in a concordance the word Jews, you'll find that after the day of Pentecost, the Jews constantly appealed to the Roman authorities to punish the apostles who were preaching the gospel. Just look up the word Jews. It's used many times in the book of Acts. They're always trying to use the state to punish the apostles who are preaching the gospel. They're doing the same thing that they did with Jesus. They're trying to use the civil power to get rid of public enemy number one. And, uh, and the same is true during the 1260 years. And by the way, it was also true during the colonial period. You know, Pastor Jensen could talk about the colonial period. You know, the, the, the Puritans uh, came from England uh, to the United States and they established the church here. And then everybody who did not agree with the established church, uh, their civil rights were, were curtailed. So, so even in, in colonial America, and the founding fathers of the United States knew the history of the colonial period and they knew the history of the 1260 years. And we need to understand our founding documents in the light of the type of government that they were acquainted with in the colonial period and during the 1260 years. I'd like to ask our panel, or, or you, Steve, um, wh why is it that the church has often down through the centuries appealed to government? What, what is their motivation? Why would they do that? And then I want to make a comment. So why would the church look to the state uh, to uh, enforce its religious dogmas? The, what I remember just off the top of my head is that they, in their form of government, have a lack of power. And as a result of having that lack of power, having a lack of life-changing power from the, the true Holy Spirit, they're appealing to the power of the state to bring the uh, dictates of their conscience in a line with uh, their, their doctrine. In other words, to make up for the power that is lacking, the religious power, which they don't have. I remember hearing some time ago uh, a statement something like this. When the church looks to the state for artificial respiration, you can be sure that it is near death. <laughs> so it would be a near-death experience, huh? <laughs> um, well, um, I would like to maybe address another question, which I think uh, will lead us down uh, another, another road related to this. And that is, what is it that keeps the moral fiber of the United States the way God intended the moral fiber to be? Is, is it the state um, making sure that people are moral and making sure that people are religious? Or where, where does the... Uh, spirituality of a nation reside? Well, um, I've always said to people, the most important people in a society are parents and teachers. 
Because if we don't have teachers that are teaching our children when the parents are not around, and if we don't have parents who are instilling the values that uh, they need, uh, we're going to be in a serious, serious problem. And if we look around our, our society today, we can see the result of parents um, allowing someone else to take that responsibility from them. And uh, also, uh, in addition to the parents and the teachers, we also need the church uh, to all, in addition to instill the values in the people. Uh, when our church is not doing it and they appeal to the state to do that, or if they appeal to the school to do the jobs of the parents, then we end up with the serious situation that we have today. So in other words, uh, the moral fiber of a nation depends on family, it depends on schools, and it depends on the church. And I think the founding fathers had that idea. The founding fathers said, you know, when, when the family is strong, and when the church is strong, and when the school is strong, the nation will be moral, and then you won't have to build all these prisons, and you won't have all this violence. But when the family uh, uh, collapses like it has basically in the United States, and when you have uh, schools that, uh, well, do I need to say any more about the, what the schools are teaching these days? And when you have churches that consistently tell their members, you know, uh, you're not saved by, by uh, keeping the law. You know, you're saved by grace. And, and so you don't, God doesn't expect you to keep the law. We're not under law. We're under grace. And, and they repeat it and repeat it. People say, well, you know, I can be saved and I don't really have to worry about uh, living a pious life. And so what happens? That leavens society. Society becomes violent. And then what does the state have to do? The state has to step in and say, hey, things are out of hand. And so the state steps in and does what the church and the family and the school should have done in planting the principles in the human heart. So the problems in our society and the sins that are there uh, lie at the door of the church, if I remember a statement like that. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. If our nation had been studying Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 in a literal instead of a metaphorical way, we wouldn't be having the problems in our gender restrooms today. So I, I believe that it's an attack on the Bible. It's proof that we have neglected the Scripture, and there is only the result that God is going to bring His judgments upon us. Bottom line, if you believe in the theory of evolution, any definition of marriage will do because marriage didn't take place the way Genesis says. And if you believe in evolution, the Sabbath goes too. Because if there was no literal Sabbath, then any day will do. The devil knows that the best way to undermine the Sabbath and the family is by getting rid of the story of a literal creation. And um, I'd like to transition now. Pastor Jensen has been uh, dealing for, for quite a long time now with a bill that's come before, a state bill, 1146, that has come before the California legislature. And I uh, was wondering if he might be able to explain a little bit about this. And let me just frame the question that'll, that'll guide you in your answer. Uh, you know, the Spirit of Prophecy tells us that the end time crisis is going to be the church railroading the state into enforcing religious legislation. But as we look at the, at the panorama today, particularly in California, it seems like the state is trying to infringe upon the rights of the church. 
the state is trying to dictate to the church. You know, you have to accept gay marriage and you have to accept transgender bathrooms and, and you know, uh, your universities uh, have to employ individuals who are, um, who are transgender and, uh, you know, you can't, uh, you can't have a curriculum where you tell students that uh, living a straight life is according to God's plan. Uh, so it seems like uh, the state is uh, infringing and interfering with the church. Is that correct? Very definitely. The bill that he referenced was Senate Bill 1146 here in California that is being uh, promoted by the LGBTQ uh, community. For years now, uh, students in private and religious schools have been receiving Cal grants and other forms of federal aid. Uh, and up to this point, um, schools, uh, private and religious schools have been able to discriminate. Uh, don't let that word scare you when it comes to uh, hiring practices that we uh, can hire people only of our own faith, um, that we can, in a sense, uh, determine uh, who uh, can come to our schools or what our, at least what our religious beliefs and practices will be. Uh, as one uh, uh, observer of the bill uh, stated, faith-based institutions in California would no longer be able to require a profession of faith from their students. Um, they would no longer be able to integrate faith in their curriculum. In fact, the way the bill is now, the only place where religion could be taught in a religious school would be in a class for theology students. Well, why does a religious school even exist? I mean, you, you, you take out religion out of the school, so you no longer have a religious school. I mean, it's as simple as that. And by the way, my question would be, before I tell you other bad things about the bill, why would anybody who is not religious, who does not believe in the moral values that a private and religious school espouse, who may be an atheist, who has a lifestyle that is not compatible with the Christian religion, why would they even want to go there in the first place? Why not go to a public college when, when their views can be accepted? So the whole thing, uh, to me, uh, speaks of uh, somebody's got an agenda there somewhere. But continuing... Yeah, for the uh, same reason they would go to a Christian bakery to bake... Yes, for the same reason they'd go to a Christian bakery to have them uh, bake a cake, you know, for a gay wedding, you know. Uh, there's, an, there's a hidden agenda there. Uh, they talk about tolerance, which maybe later on in their second part of this, we can talk about this whole idea of how freedom of religion and freedom of speech are closely tied together, and they're both part of the First Amendment. They're really wanting to silence the speech of Christians who are speaking out about moral issues, and we'll come back to that later. Uh, the schools would not be allowed to uh, require chapel attendance. They would have to um, uh, open their dorms to co-ed dorms. There would be co-ed restrooms and showers, and the list goes on and on. So right now, um, it was uh, Thursday of this week, it went to the Assembly Judiciary Committee. Uh, they are now on summer recess through the month of July. It'll be coming up again in August. Go to the Assembly Appropriations Committee, and because amendments have been made, it will go back uh, to the floor of the original House, uh, the Assembly, um, and back and forth between the two. Uh, so it's a very, very uh, dangerous bill, and what's happening today in society is there is a false dichotomy here of pitting 
gay rights against civil rights or religious freedom rights. And I'll never forget early on in the presidential campaign when Ben Carson was asked by a moderator, uh, he said, you are a person of faith. So how do you feel about this idea of, of gays being able to exercise their rights as opposed to your exercising your religious liberty rights? And they thought that they had really laid a, a trap for Ben Carson. And he remained cool, calm, and collected, and he just offered a simple phrase. He said, let me remind you that the Pledge of Allegiance says liberty and justice for all. And so to say that one group of people, in this case the gay rights community, has the right to trump the rights of religious freedom uh, is a false dichotomy. So it seems to me with your comments about what's going on in our schools, in our education system, in our even uh, the parks, the, the common parks today, with some of the decisions that are being made in our nation today, the only explanation I can give for somebody who would ask me is that the prophecy is being fulfilled that we've read about in Ellen White. The Spirit of God is being withdrawn from this earth. You can certainly see that by all the terrorist attacks that are taking place, not only around the world, but specifically in the United States. Let me share something uh, really uh, amazing about this. Most of you are familiar with the uh, shooting in Orlando, the gay rights club, you know, where 49 people lost their lives. I saw an article just a few uh, days ago that really shed some interesting light of the thinking of the gay rights community. I'm going to just quote this uh, article here from the Internet. Uh, Chase Santiago, an attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union, said that the Christian right is responsible for the slaughter of these LGD people because they oppose gay rights bills. Instead of, instead of laying the blame on where it, where it really lies, on ISIS and radicals, they are blaming the Christian community of being intolerant, and because of that environment, they are the ones to blame because they are hate mongers uh, of the gay rights community. Do you see how they're twisting things here? And ultimately, uh, you know what the devil's agenda is, is uh, he has his focus zeroed on God's remnant people. You know, it's not, it's not Christians in general. He has his eyes on Seventh-day Adventists, and he knows that if Seventh-day Adventists stand for what's right when it comes to morality and when it comes to other issues, he knows that he's going to be able to uh, turn basically the world against them. And, uh, and Ellen White describes that Satan sees in the remnant the one obstacle to dominating the whole world, but he's not going to be able to overcome them. Well, um, we um, want to encourage you to stick around. We'll be right back. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.